Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on business and entrepreneurship. Our last episode was with Dominic McGregor. We talked about his story and how it was perhaps the stereotype of how we characterise the entrepreneurship journey. University dropout who sent a tweet that became worth hundreds of millions. Well, Anne Bowden from Starling Bank is different, very different. As she describes herself in this interview on today's show, she was in her 50s. She was from Wales. She was a woman in finance and technology, and she's only five foot tall. Since we recorded this interview 10 days ago, it has been announced that Starling have taken 50 million in funding from Goldman Sachs, taking the total valuation of Starling to 1.1 billion and therefore the proverbial unicorn status. Her story of founding a bank in 2014 to growing it to the size it is today demonstrates that entrepreneurs can come in all shapes and sizes. Starling now employs 1,000 people across the UK, including setting up large hubs in Southampton and Cardiff. Anne talks us through why those places stood out as talent hubs. She talks about how you don't need a financial services background to work at Starling. They are hiring software engineers, data analysts, and graphic designers. A big part of what drives this show is wanting to tell the brilliant entrepreneurial stories that are happening all across the UK. Each episode is full of entrepreneurs creating jobs. They don't make headlines about creating hundreds or thousands because so often it is about the incremental steps along the way. And of course, that is a reminder that this podcast is making its own first foray into that world as we are taking on our first employees to help power our next stage of growth. So if you are curious about the way our economy is growing, want to work on researching guests and helping us get it into more ears, please check out the show notes for more details. We have surpassed 100 reviews on iTunes. A big thank you to Eben Owen, a student at Cardiff University, who left a six-word review. That is all it takes for me to think that this show is worthwhile. If you could leave a rating, it really does make a big difference. And don't forget to tell a friend or six about the show, as that's the best way that we can grow it. Thanks to Octopus Group for their support in this second series. A reminder that they are looking for new charity partners and welcoming applications across the next month. The support offered includes £45,000 of unrestricted funding. Thanks for listening and on to today's show. So welcome to today's show, Anne. We start the second series by asking all of our guests what their journey into work was. What was your work experience or your first paid job? Well, thank you for inviting me. I have to think back to the very beginning, but my first paid job was my first real job. And my start was probably a bit different from anybody else's. I came from a very ordinary family where my father worked in a local steelworks and my mother worked in a department store. And their dream for me was that I'd work in an office and not a factory. And I just wanted a job with a briefcase. And I didn't have a Saturday job. My father told me that you'll work 40 years in a job, working very hard. You can study until your first job. And that's what I did. My first paid job was my first job at university. And since then, I've worked every day. And to be honest, I think I have worked every day since then. And I've loved it. 
So my start, my parents didn't encourage me to have a Saturday job in order to appreciate money. I knew very well I had to work very hard for everything. And I was fortunate to have parents who really supported me in my education. And was your first job in financial services? Yeah, my first job was, I was a computer science graduate, computer science and chemistry from Swansea University. And I came up to London as a graduate trainee into the computer systems department of Lloyds Bank. I applied for quite a number of jobs. Most of those jobs actually were jobs in science. You know, I had this idea that I'd be in a rural town in a white coat analyzing chemicals and with computers. I was into doing things in very technical environments. But my mum said to me, you've got to apply for one job in a safe industry. You've got to apply for one proper job. I applied for a job in Lloyds Bank and there was a huge number of people applying for that job. It was the first graduate intake of computer scientists. Uh, no, there's the second. I was the second year through and there were thousands of people applying. And I got that job. I had a job in London and I didn't want to go to the big city and I wanted to go to a rural town. But I was 21 and had a job in the city and I turned up for my first day in the job and went, wow, I think I'm going to really enjoy this. Somebody's going to pay me to do this and it's so much fun and it's a lovely job. Since then, I've been really hooked on what I do and I've loved every job and had a huge amount from it from day one. It's so valuable and so amazing when people are able to find a job that they love and so on. And that that is the purpose very much of this podcast. And fast forward 30 years and you start Starling Bank. And in your book, Banking on It, you're very open about this, that there is a stereotype about technology and entrepreneurs and it being young, trendy people in Shoreditch and so on. And you booked that in a number of regards. The book is a fascinating read and a great story of everything that you've done with Starling. Can you give us the summary of how you came to found the bank? Yes. After a long career in banking, where I, you know, I'd worked around the world, I'd worked in large organizations around the world, I'd found myself in Ireland as chief operating officer, trying to return our Irish banks to profitability. And it was tough. And the job was all about making people redundant and cutting back. And I started going around the world talking to other banks about what they were doing. And I came to the conclusion that the right thing to do would be to start from scratch, that all industries had changed because of technology, but banking hadn't changed. And the sensible thing to do would be for somebody to start a new bank with new technology. And at the same time, I started thinking, well, could I really stick out five years? And I suddenly realized that the person starting that new bank could be me. And I quit my job to start a bank. And you've had amazing success since then, bringing in so many customers and growing at an exponential rate. And you've just been valued as a unicorn as well, which is quite an important milestone on a journey. But I know it's something that you don't want to get too hung up and too focused on. And there is talk of you doing an initial public offering floating on the stock markets soon. But I was really intrigued by a quote that you said the other day, which was too often entrepreneurs see the IPO moment as a moment of victory. And actually, it's just another step in the journey. I'd love to hear about what your plans for Starling are for the next five to 10 years and beyond. 
Yes, well, you know, I've been on this journey now since the beginning of 2014. Launching a bank and starting a bank is very, very difficult. You know, it took me many years to get the banking license and many years to build the technology and years to raise the money. We are now into the journey where, yes, recently we were valued at £1.1 billion pre-money and we've raised hundreds of millions from some fantastic investors. And that's the next, you know, tick in the box. We now are attracting big institutions onto our cap table. Yes, we will probably do an IPO end of 22, early 23. That is another phase in the development of Starling. But, you know, we spent many years competing against other new banks. Now we compete against the big banks. We're up there competing against the Barclays and the Lloyds and the HSBCs, taking real market share from them. This is the next stage in our journey. This organization will have to go through different stages, challenge itself, grow, change. Every day is different. And that's what's exciting. And how do you keep the culture with a company that has grown so fast? I was really struck in the book, Banking on It. You talked about the first 10 people that you hired, and actually none of them really had banking experience. And your mission has been to disrupt and shake the banking industry up. Talk us through the culture of that when it comes to hiring people and keeping that disruptive culture going when you're over a thousand people now. I think the thing about Starling is that everything moves very, very fast, but it moves very fast in a very, very controlled way. Building a tech company is about rigor. It's about process. It's about doing things in a very structured way, but nevertheless being prepared to make moves and make mistakes and do something different. Everything in Starling moves in small increments. So we we make changes to our app and our technology five, six, seven times a day, but little changes so that if we make a mistake, we can backtrack and back it out. But we're constantly moving. Big banks are moving on the basis of moving systems, say, once every three months. We are moving very, very quickly, very, very precisely. When people look at new organizations such as Starling and especially organization in the fintech space, they may imagine that it's all very much ping pong tables and a relaxed atmosphere internally. Everybody's really, really into the mission, has a passion for doing things in a certain way. We're very collaborative. We love doing things together. We enjoy people's company. We enjoy challenging things. And we're super ambitious. We've come a long way and we've got so much more we can do and intend to do. The culture is very can-do and ambitious and we're aiming for greatness. And what are the types of roles that you're hiring for now? I mean, looking at the Starling Careers website beforehand, there's lots of openings. How do you keep a pace with that? And just tell us about some of the roles that you've got and which areas of the business you're looking to grow over the next few years. How can people prepare themselves for those jobs? Well, the roles are very, very wide and we have people that have skills in graphics and design and marketing to people that have social skills in talking to customers, to people that deal with vulnerable customers, to software engineers. And the software engineering is very wide. We build our own software. We just don't buy things off the shelf and install it. We have people who have mathematics degrees and stats degrees that help us with all the data analytics and build machine learning models and artificial intelligence. We have people who design all our front ends or product design people or lending specialists to decide who we're going to lend to and who we're not going to lend to. 
There are so many, many different jobs available and we're growing all the time. And what really excites us is where we bring in people into the organization and perhaps it's their first job and they really, really thrive. We are good at actually valuing content people and skills people, whether they are lawyers or accountants or treasurers or people who specialize in FX. It's such a wide range of things. And yes, do look on our website and see what's available at the moment. You know, we've taken on hundreds and hundreds of people over the last couple of months. So and we've grown very, very fast. One of the things I was always keen to stress to the Prime Minister when I was in number 10 was that you know entrepreneurship was happening all over the country. And obviously, Starling's main base is in London. But actually, almost half of your workforce now is made up in Southampton and Cardiff. Can you talk to us about why you picked those areas? I mean, I know Cardiff is quite close to your heart, although it's not Swansea, which may have been part of the reason for some of it. I'd love to hear why those two cities you decided to focus on. Yes, we're trying to bring great jobs and great careers to people across the UK. Fintech, you know, started in Shoreditch. There's a lot of financial technology jobs in the city of London, but we are bringing exciting jobs to Southampton and Cardiff as well. We are hiring people within a couple of hours commute from those places. So, for example, in Cardiff, we are very close to the university where Dame Wendy Hall works and leads the artificial intelligence group there. And she opened our building in Southampton. Down in Cardiff, we have a data scientist group that's led by Harriet Rees. And Harriet Rees is a head of data science at Starling. And she was a graduate in actuarial sort of data science, working for a French bank out in France. When she listened to me talking about Starling on BBC Wales Radio, Harriet's from Cardiff, she listened in and she thought... Wow, wouldn't I like to help Anne build a bank and build a bank that's really relevant for today's age? And she wrote to me and in a couple of months later, Harriet joined Starling. And there must be so many stories that you have similar to that of people that have joined. And one of the things that struck me through the book is that you wanted to be very much trying and iterating different ways of approaching things. And you've always been keen to muck in yourself as well, the particular story with the ice creams and using that as a marketing ploy and so on. I thought was really innovative and about the last thing that you would expect from a bank. What ways have people impressed you particularly in terms of hiring? Because I think sometimes that young people, you know, just people in their 20s and 30s can think, oh, well, I don't have any banking experience. There's no way that I could go and work at a company like Starling. But it's not true, is it? You know, there's many different roles for people with all kinds of skill sets, as you were outlining. And it's not about in a number of years of experience, and it's not about age. Some of the Starlings uh, is full of people in their 20s who are doing extremely responsible jobs running Starling. Technology changes all the time. One of the things I tell everybody is that what you know can really hold you back. One of the big challenges I had when I started Starling this sort of seven years ago was I had 30 odd years full of experience of how banks did things. I had to forget about a lot of that because that knowledge wasn't good knowledge. I had to throw that knowledge away and embrace a new world. So it's so, so important to not let what you know hold you back. 
We all have the capacity to do new things. We all have the capacity to reinvent yourself. I spent some of my career in insurance, working for Aon Corporation. I spent some of my career as a transaction banking. I spent some of my career as a technologist. And now I am the founder of a bank. And occasionally I come across people who say to me, yes, I remember there was a, an Anne Bowden, you know, that used to work for UBS in Switzerland in this part of banking. I remember somebody called Anne Bowden that used to work for Aon Corporation. Is she related? And I say, no, no, that's me. Right? <laughs> I have had a long career doing very, very interesting things. And I've taken some really radical changes and moves. A career is built and you have to start somewhere. When you take that first job, see what you can get out of it and see where it, where it takes you. You don't have to be in that job forever, but it'll give you the experience you need for the next step. Very true. And your whole career has been a way of, of challenging sometimes the status quo and, and so on. And one of the bits you talk about in the book is the challenge of being a woman in financial services. And you come up with a really neat expression for it in terms of the boiled egg syndrome of sometimes being perceived to be too hard and sometimes too soft and never quite right. And that was just a kind of metaphor that really stuck with me whilst reading the book. Do you think that's improving? No, I don't think things have got any easier for women over the last 30 years. You know, I made my career in finance and technology, and now I'm an entrepreneur. There were never new women in finance, there were never new women in tech, and there aren't any women in entrepreneurship. And I think the reason for this is that those businesses, those spheres are very, very tough on women. You have to be better than the guys. The standards that you're held to are higher than for men. So as a diverse groups tend to be held to higher standards, tend to be criticized more. So if you listen to somebody describing a woman in a powerful job or in a professional job of some sort, listen and see how often they either describe her as being too tough or too soft, and sometimes both together. She can't get it right. It is a different sort of criticism that men don't get. I think that's very fair. How much of that has driven you, though, at points to prove people wrong? I mean, the book is a, as I've said already, is, is a great read and it's it's a great story. And not all business books are great stories at all. You talk about Tom Blomfield, mentioned in the introduction and so on, how he left the company early to go and found Monzo. And he's a character that comes up in the story a number of times. How much did that drive you as well, that, that experience to prove people wrong? It seems like it's very deep with you to do that. And you've always had to do it to a degree. But being the entrepreneur is almost the ultimate test of it. Yeah, I think that I must admit there were really, really difficult points in this journey. And on certain days, I didn't give up because it was just easier to carry on to the next day. Proving it is possible, proving people wrong. It's probably a bit of that in, it, in, in my story. In the journey, most people told me it couldn't be done. Most people told me that nobody ever starts a bank. If you start a bank, you need to be a billionaire. And you can't build a bank that actually has all new technology, which you're going to build from scratch. You can't have a new business banking license. You can't get millions of customers and people will never trust a new bank. And yet we've proved them wrong. We've built a bank from scratch with a new banking license, with new technology and millions of people that sort of treasure us. And, and we've grown very, very fast. 
people told me it could not be done. And the subtext was always, it couldn't be done. And if it could be done, it wouldn't be done by somebody like you. I wasn't an investment banker. I didn't particularly have a high profile. I'd had a very successful job, but I wasn't that well known. I'm a Welsh woman that's five foot tall. I was in my mid fifties that had never been an entrepreneur that decided to build a new bank. Most things were acting against me, but I didn't have anything to lose. The only thing I feared was people laughing at me as being not realistic. And if that was the only thing I had to fear, well, I was going to have a go anyway. It took me a long time to raise money. And it was very humiliating when people without the experience, without the background, managed to raise money much more quickly because they fitted the prototype. They fitted the stereotype of what an entrepreneur looks like. But I hope that people now realize that people like me can be entrepreneurs. And it is possible as we get more and more people of diverse backgrounds, of different ages, different genders and different backgrounds, starting journeys and succeeding, then you'll encourage more. And how do you keep going when you get no's and you get told it can't be done all the time? It must just ground you down, more of attrition almost. How did you keep yourself going and keep thinking this is a good idea because as you say you had a very respected career in financial services and technology beforehand and were remunerated well in that there must have been some points where you thought well perhaps you know I should go back to that world but you kept going with it I don't think it was possible to go back to the world to be honest I made such a bold move and told people I was going to start a bank I think it'd been very difficult to go back to the old world. People would have thought that was just crazy. I had started this mission. I could either stop and do something totally different or continue. And I kept on going. It was probably now looking back. If I'd known how difficult it was going to be, I wouldn't have started. But that's what happens to entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs start things because they think they can do it and keep on going. But very early in the story, must be about 2014, I met somebody and they said to me, the important thing is you don't give up. If you just keep on going, you'll improve your chances. But most people just give up. And I just didn't give up. But I had certain advantages in that I'd worked for 30 odd years. I had a certain amount of financial security that I could afford not to take a salary for a couple of years. And that was the advantage I had. And those advantages are not available to people in their 30s and then their 40s. They have families and they have commitments. You can be an entrepreneur at 20, you can be an entrepreneur in your late 50s. In the middle, it's far more difficult. I think that's really interesting. And who who have been your mentors and inspirations along the way for this journey? It's always fascinating to hear who inspires the entrepreneurs. I haven't really had any, you know, sort of physical, real people as mentors during my career. I love books. I still read an incredible amount. I'm constantly listening to audiobooks and exploring books and, you know, writing books. I get a lot from other people's experiences. And that's why I wrote Banking on It. Books were there for me when things were really tough. I wanted to write my story and explain that things go wrong. Most businesses have had several near-death experiences. There's a bit of survivor syndrome in, in some stories where they only tell you the good things. I wanted to tell the whole truth. And I think that's very important and you do that well and a lot of society now is shown to be easy and quick success and 
it's true of all the entrepreneurs that we've had on the show, it just is not easy. And it takes an awful lot of work along the way for anyone who's made a success at any walk of life. There's a lot of government ministers and policymakers that listen to this show. What would be your advice to the government? And you talk a lot about regulation and the challenges of getting the banking license in the book. What is your advice to the government post-Brexit, post-coronavirus? Feels like a moment of change for the country, which has great opportunity, but some pretty big challenges with it as well. What would your advice be to those ministers? I think we have in the UK a thriving fintech industry. Financial technology has come of age. It's creating real jobs, well-paid jobs in the UK, and not just in London. They are regional jobs, but actually forging new grants. So fintech, as well as being successful, it's high growth. And it's doing the right thing for society. It's giving people better financial products to manage their financial health. And therefore, you know, be proud of the industry that we have in the UK. I think we have 10 unicorns now, 10 fintech unicorns. That is an extraordinary number. It's the highest in Europe. We need to be proud of this industry and promote it overseas. And what are your predictions for the fintech industry over the next 10 years? Where do you see the sort of future of jobs in the industry, but also more broadly? You know, it it is something that has changed such a dramatic shift in 10 years. People on average used to go into their bank branch along the lines of once every couple of months, perhaps. And now you've got people checking their bank balances, you know, a few times almost a day because they can do it through their phones and so on. That is such a societal shift change when it comes to people's relationship with money. What do you think the future impact over the next decade will be on that? I think it's here to stay. I think that one of the big issues is the cashless society. We have a whole group of people who were lobbying to retain cash. I think cashless is a good idea. I think the problem we have at the moment is that people should have right to data, right to smartphones, right to broadband, just like your utilities. We need to consider data, mobiles and smartphones as one of those essentials for life. When we have that, our money systems won't need cash. It will be easier for people to control their spending and it'd be cheaper to manage the infrastructure. Lots of people are lobbying to retain cash on the basis that older people need it. Older people need resources and money and pensions and mobiles. We don't need cash. The world is definitely heading in that direction, but it seems to be calling for the government to speed it up. And I know there are some political challenges around that. I remember on a couple of occasions, the Treasury has proposed to scrap the one and two pennies. And there are always their newspaper headlines around the government and the Conservative Party being penny pinchers. It's always a bit of a political challenge, but I agree it is the way the world is heading. Just in terms of, you know, there are some enormous changes that are happening in terms of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and so on. We've had the bloatation of Coinbase in the last couple of weeks. What do you see the the future of cryptocurrencies being on fintech? Crypto has been part of the fintech world for probably eight, nine years now. And it's seen as being a racier end, the riskier end. If you ask me last year, would Starling be considering embracing cryptocurrencies, I'd say definitely not. Our customers didn't need it or asking us for it. In a couple of years' time, I think it's going to be different. I think it's becoming more mainstream. 
And, you know, yesterday I was talking to somebody about what we should tell our customers about saving and investing. For the majority of people, crypto is not for them. Crypto is still very, very high risk. It's much more important that you save sterling. Okay. Um, uh, and I think it's really important for people to do a, bit of, a little bit of saving, a little bit of investing, so they have some money for a rainy day. That is very true and something the government is always keen to push our penultimate question before we ask about favorite book that you read which i realize that's going to be a a bit of a challenge given the amount you read is a question from joe seddon who runs the charity zero gravity which looks to get those from underprivileged backgrounds applying to russell group universities his question is just about the advice that you would give somebody in their younger years now, or or almost counsel, because it's difficult to give advice because advice comes rooted in your own biases and so on. But if Anne Bowden was going to university again now, what would your advice be to her in 2021? Not to be influenced by your peers or the expectations of the people around you, really. I went to a school where people didn't go to university. I think one or two had gone to university from previous years. I think I was the only person who went to university from my sixth form. There wasn't the expectation to go to university. My teachers didn't expect me to go to university. And I think for a lot of students where they're working and they're living with people and spending their time with people that don't have those expectations, expressing a desire to go to university is seen as being unusual. I think I was unusual and I was prepared to be not like everybody else, to be the exception. And I've been prepared to be the exception throughout my career. So my advice to those people is look forward to not fitting in. Look forward to being the exception and don't necessarily be influenced by your peers. It's very good advice to plough your own furrow, as it were. As the final question, what's the best book that you've read lately? And it can be a business book or give us a couple, actually, because you read so many books. It'd be great to hear what's kind of inspired you over the last few months. I keep reading books that have inspired me in the past to see if I have a different perception on them. There's quite a lot of new books that come out every year and I get sent a lot now to actually review but if you actually, if I'm, I'm just gently going through what I've read in the last week or two, I read Billion Dollar Loser, which is Vitamin's book about the founder of WeWork. That is a story of Adam Newman, whose story was so, so different from my story. Uh, he raised money very, very easily. <laughs> he was allowed to lose billions. Nobody ever said that he was too hard or too soft. But then he lost his company. So that's a really good book, Billion Dollar Loser. You know, there are the classics such as for careers, you know, Lean In from Sheryl Sandberg. But at the moment, I'm reading Barack Obama's A Promised Land. And how are you finding that? I've read some of his, you know, I read his previous book and I didn't particularly enjoy it. I really did enjoy Michelle Obama's The Coming. I thought that was really, really good. That was a fantastic story. I've read lots of different books about Elon Musk, trying to figure out how a fintech entrepreneur, because that's where he was, he was PayPal, ended up worrying about missions to the moon. Because that's where fintech entrepreneurs can end up if they take a bit of a turn. There's so much out there that can be inspiration to people founding businesses. So what's the best book you've read on Elon Musk? Because like you say, there are a lot. 
Ah, let me just have a look. It's the Ashley Vance one. That's quite good. But I quite enjoy, and I quite like political biographies as well. Listening to other people's stories, figuring out what goes well and what goes badly. They're comparing. When things were going really badly with Starling and I'd listen to somebody else's story, I'd conclude, well, they had a rough time as well and they survived, so I can do it. And how much, uh, really as a final question, how much does it feel that your customers are buying into the Starling story? Because you have written a book and, and you do lots of appearances and, and talk about it and are an inspiration to lots of people by doing that. How much is it that sort of brand building and that narrative creation? How much do you think that impacts the business? I think you have to spend more time listening and reading with your customers and talking about them. My email is very simple. It's Anne at starlingbank.com. So people guess it and I get lots and lots of emails from customers. I get emails from customers who enjoy the experience, have bad experiences, want us to do something different, are frustrated by other banks. So I get lots and lots of feedback from customers. And sometimes when I reply, they think I'm a bot. People send me an email at 10.30 at night and I reply with a sensible answer. And they think I'm a bit of artificial intelligence. And I have to prove that it's actually me. I think there's a huge danger that the cult of the founder cult means that you spend all your time talking on podcasts and talking to the media and not listening to customers. And that's when it all goes terribly wrong. You know, I spend most of my day trying to get to grips on how we do a better job. We have millions of customers now who depend on us. We've done nearly two billions worth of lending in the last year. We have more than a thousand people. And we've taken on hundreds of people during the last year. And we are responsible for the well-being of our customers and our staff. And that's a huge responsibility. I'm always sceptical about people who find lots and lots of time for hobbies and chilling out and having a balanced life. My life is not balanced. I work and I do Starling and it's a full-time job. And it has to be a full-time job because we have so much responsibility. I mean, that's amazing to hear. And I think nothing can encapsulate the difference between a traditional bank and a fintech than giving out your email address. I can't imagine the big bank CEOs coming on the show and giving out their email address under any circumstances. So that really does sum it up in a very neat way. And thanks so much for your time. I really hope we can do it in person at some point later in the year when we're allowed and so on, because it's amazing to hear your story and your book banking on it from Penguin is really, like I say, a good story, which is thoroughly well told. It really is a story. It's a really interesting book. So thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. The mission of this podcast is to help inform people about the fantastic jobs that are being created and trying to present that information in an as accessible format as possible. I'd therefore really appreciate it if you could send this episode to someone who you think might find it useful and interesting. It doesn't have to be just for them. It could be that they work at a school, college, or just interested in the future of our economy. If you could rate us on iTunes, that would be great. And of course, we are on social media platforms at Jimmy's Jobs. We are particularly trying to grow it on LinkedIn. Thanks to the team at Particle 6 for their editing skills and thanks to George Dick Cleland for the artwork. <laughs>